healthier children understand there's always something under their control, but there's also always something out of their control. And both are to be talked about. You know, we can't run away from the things that are out of our control. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. I'm here with Shapali Sabari and the co-author of her new book, Superpowered, Rene Jain. So if you haven't heard of Shafali Sabari, you may be living under a rock. Shafali has been on Oprah like seven times. In fact, she was brought on news to talk about how amazing her insights were to the point where in one episode of Oprah, Oprah actually cried listening to Shafali speak. Now, Shafali is one of my favorite speakers to put in the Mind Valley stage and to have on this podcast because she seems to channel wisdom Those are the words of many people in the audience who see her speak. The last time we put Shafali on stage was Mind Valley Live Los Angeles. It was in February 2020, just before the pandemic hit. And when we looked at the audience reviews, Shafali was rated the number one speaker. Pretty consistent about Shafali. Wherever I bring her on, a podcast, a talk, she always blows people away with her wisdom. And today, Shafali is going to be talking about her new book, Superpowered, Transforming Society into Courage, Confidence, and Resilience, co-authored with Rene Jain. And Shafali, welcome to Mind Valley. Thank you so much, Vishen. I love Mind Valley. I love your community. I feel so one with it. And the quest that Vishen and I did together has been helping so many parents. So I'm so excited to have my dear friend, Rini Jane, here with me. Rini, she's done an interview with Little Humans through Mind Valley. She is a genius. She's the founder of GoZen.com. I would never write a book with anyone except her because her knowledge base around what helps children be resilient is bar none. So Hi, Rini. I'm so happy you're here. Hi, Shefali. Hi, Vishen. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited. Yes, we co-wrote this book. We're so excited. Who gets so excited to talk about anxiety? We're so excited to talk about anxiety. (laughs) Well, you know, the publishers approached us, both of us, to write a book. That never happens. You know, we have to go chasing publishers. And the reason they approached us is because we understood children, we understood parents, and anxiety. And they saw that anxiety is on the rise in the US, especially and now after the pandemic all around the world. And they wanted to heal children. And what better person than we need to help on the children's side. And I came in on the parent side. So we're open to talk about this book. So Rini will maybe explain the main philosophy behind this book. And then we can take your questions. Okay. And just before you begin, Rini, we're recording this in front of a live audience. So there are approximately 300 members of Mind Valley All Access tuning in live. Welcome, Dixie Ann. Welcome, Elizabeth Sandler. Welcome, Sham, Jasmine, Diana, Luis Granda, Anna Chowdhury. And our live participants will be tossing out questions. They will be helping guide some of this conversation. We like to make these really interactive. And for those of you listening on the podcast, I hope you enjoy this new format of recording podcasts that we've been putting out because we are finding that when we have a live audience, the authors are so much more excited and this audience represents you. So they often ask just the right question that is dwelling in your mind. So welcome everyone who's here live. Thank you for showing up and let's get started. 
Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for having us. So I just want to piggyback off of what Shefali began with, which is the publisher reached out to us and they said, we want to write a book to help kids get rid of anxiety. And Shefali and I said, well, we can't write that book. And they were like, well, why not? You know, you guys are the go-to people on anxiety for kids and for parents. And we said, because it is not to be gotten rid of. It is part of who we are. So we will happily write a book on transforming it and using it for empowerment. And that is truly the premise of this book, Superpowered. So we started with the premise, there's nothing wrong with you. You worry, you're anxious, that's okay. It's part of being human. Now let's interact with that. So this book is not about getting rid of, it is about changing our relationship with the feelings that we have. Wow. Wow. What a, what a mind twist. I really like that, Rini. So what do you mean by transforming anxiety into courage, confidence, and resilience? What exactly does that mean? Mm. You know, for the most part, when we think of anxiety and when we think of worry, it worries us, right? For kids, a lot of times they think something is bad when they're anxious. They think something is wrong. They actually think, so I grew up a very anxious kid and I used to think something was wrong with me. I should hide these feelings. So what transforming means is that every feeling we have is a messenger, right? So worry and anxiety is sending a message. And what we can do is we can sit with the feeling, right? This is the part that's so hard for all of us because we run away, we quash, we ignore, we try to get rid of, right? We try to lessen. We can sit with the feeling and the moment we allow the feeling to rise up, we start to decode the message that anxiety is sending. So in the book, we teach kids anxiety is like a secret code that you need to break, and once you break the code of the message that's being sent, then you can take that message and transform it. So very specifically, for example, in the book, if you're giving a speech or Vishen invited Dr. Shivali and Rini Jane to his podcast, and this is something, you know, we speak all the time on stages, but I'm going to be honest with you, two minutes before I came on, I started to feel a little tightness in my chest. Oh my goodness, this is the feeling of worry, right? So what we know from research is that if we sit with this worry right before a challenge and we say to ourselves the words, well, this is excitement, you know, I'm excited, I'm excited and this is going to motivate me. We can actually jump from anxiety to excitement very quickly. It can help us focus. It can help motivate us. If you talk to anyone who's ever performed and has gone into the zone, right, they call it the zone or flow, that can be anxiety. And so that kind of mindset shift can actually transform the anxiety into courage, right? So that gave me courage. Yeah, my butterflies are giving me courage. I'm ready to perform. So that's a very yeah. specific example. And the reason we called it superpowered is because within us are these superpowers and we've forgotten them. You know, a lot of my work speaks to how children are conditioned in childhood. And what happens through this conditioning is that we layer upon our essence these fears that culture puts in us, right? Culture has indoctrinated us with vision calls and rules, right? Bullshit rules or th this indoctrination 
to belong, to be perfect, to be better than, to compare, to compete. And our children, and this happened to us as well, begin to layer upon their essence all these cultural messages. One of the messages is that our feelings, especially big feelings, are bad. So we talk about how parents, and this book is to help parents as well, can uncover these superpowers. And power is an acronym, and we can talk about it more, but P is for presence, O is for original, W is for whole, E is for energized, and R is for resilient. And we help in this book, one by one, each of these can be recovered, can be unfolded, can be transformed back into. So we're transforming back into our original superpowers. And this book is full of illustrations and easy text and journal writings from teenagers to make it relatable so that these big feelings don't need to be run away from. We can lean into them and go back and uncover all these layers that culture put on us. So we talk about perfectionism, comparing, feeling pressures and overschedule, like real life things that children feel and how each one can be taken away and unlayered and you go back. Very real life examples of how you feel those butterflies, what to do. You feel like you don't fit in in the lunchroom, what to do. You feel like you're not good enough, what to do. So it's very real for teenagers and preteens, but even for as young as four and five years old. You know, it's interesting because Teresa in the chat is saying, I always think we shouldn't obsess with being happy. And we actually go there in this book. We talk about this idea that, you know, there's some kind of secret map that all kids eventually get and they begin to follow, which is, you know, go to school, get good grades, get into a good college, go get married, have your 2.2 kids, and then happiness. We call it the good life map in the book. And Teresa, what you're saying is absolutely true, right? That we shouldn't obsess with happiness. So we talk to kids about meaning, about the pursuit of meaning, about thinking about what are my greatest strengths and what do I want to contribute to the world And what does the world need, you know, and where are the intersections of these things? And that it's okay, the pursuit of meaning allows for the ebb and flow of emotions, right? When I was growing up and many of the kids that we work with now, they feel like they have to hide anger, sadness, negativity, guilt, worry, part of their humanity, because they feel like they're not being successful at life, because all they keep hearing from everybody is, we just want you to be happy, you know? And so if you're not happy, it's very uncomfortable for us. So go away into your timeout or even time in corner and make the big feelings go away and come back out happy, because that means that I'm successful. And of course, this speaks to Dr. Shefali's work about really being attached to the success of our kid and that being a reflection of our own success. So in this book, we go deep into what is happiness? You know, Is that what you really want to pursue? So thank you for that comment. That's beautiful. Now, I see a lot of people in the chat talking about what's going on in the West Coast with the fires and the smoke and the ash. And just for people who are new to the Mind Valley podcast, our highest concentration of audience is in the U.S. West Coast and in Estonia, which is where I am right now. But in the U.S. West Coast right now, a large chunk of the Mind Valley community is going through this environmental crisis. And I'm seeing people talk about how it's affecting them. Nathaniel says the smoke and ash is horrible and so on. How do you turn that type of anxiety? 
So I understand the anxiety when you're about to get on stage, but how do you turn that type of anxiety, anxiety around a macroeconomic event, anxiety around a global shift like the pandemic, how do you turn that into a superpower? Yeah. So first I want to say really deeply heartfelt empathy. I just moved from Sherman Oaks, Los Angeles. I was there for three years. I have woken up in the middle of the night to alerts telling me to get out of my house because there's a fire next door. I have woken up and gone in my backyard and seen a black pool because of the soot that has fallen in it. So I absolutely, completely understand because I've lived this. So Anxiety serves a purpose. Fear serves a purpose. When there is imminent danger, in the book, we call it the blaze message, which is the message, you're in danger. I'm putting you on alert. I am activating your fight, flight, or freeze mode so that you can survive, right? And so in those situations, absolutely, we need that short-term boost. That is not to be transformed into anything, you know, for productivity. That's for survival. And we need that. But like you're talking about, Vision, with the pandemic and what's going on, with the global macro environment and what's going on with how long is this going to last, our bodies are not meant to be hypervigilant for long periods of time, right? We can't sustain it. I'm sure you've heard those stories before where people have seen something happen to like their child is changing the tire on a car and then all of a sudden the car falls on them and they get this superhuman strength and they're able to lift up the car, right? That's the adrenaline and all the chemicals flowing through your body from fight or flight. Well, we're not meant to be in that state for long periods of time. So what we need to do is to look to the past when people have been through these kind of huge disasters, 9-11, for example, right? And they have done research studies on the people who ended up with post-traumatic stress and then the people who actually had post-traumatic growth, right? So PTG is actually a thing. And it's something that you can cultivate. So I think what we need to look for are the elements of growth that can happen after something that is so big and so devastating. And then the second thing is to know, we're building a muscle. We are building a muscle of resilience by practicing interacting with our feelings every single day. To add on to that, for parents, do not run away when your children say, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. You go, yeah, I understand. This is normal. This is understandable. You know, parents panic because we're so focused on happiness and we want a smooth life that the child's worry now triggers our own unresolved worry within us. So really the parent has to understand, yes, what is happening right now through the pandemic, through the fires, through the earthquake, what will happen through the elections is all out of our control. So what do we do in those moments is A, we understand that a large part of life is always out of our control. And therefore, we have to shift to what is in our control, right? And this is cliched, but we need to name it for our children. Yes, you cannot control how other people feel about you. You cannot control the forest fires. You cannot control the weather. You know, list all the things that we can't control. Put it on a chart so there's no dispute. Yes, you're right. We can't control that. Don't pretend we can control that. But what can we control? We control how we eat today, how we feel today, what we do in this moment. And we can make an arrow. You know, these are the things we can't control. And this is called transformation, right? These are the shifts we as parents need to make within ourselves and help our children make it. This is also turning passivity into activity. And the greatest activity ultimately is what Rini talked about, is creating meaning and purpose 
you know, Vision is so big on this, right? How do we transform helplessness, passive helplessness, into active service? Tell your kid, let's raise money. Let's create a website. Let's create a book. Let's create a journal. Let's create stories. Let's create memories. Let's create anything concrete. And it can just be collecting, you know, news data and sharing it with your friends. Any way that they feel that they are doing something positive so they're not apathetically passively bearing, you know, just observation to the event. Now they're participating. Maybe they can, you know, raise some money for the firefighters. Maybe they can plant mm -hmm. a tree today. You know, so help your children understand there's always something under their control, but there's also always something out of their control. And both are to be talked about. You know, we can't run away from the things that are out of our control. So Megan asks an interesting question. What physical symptoms occur in children when they experience stress and anxiety? Yeah, the same physical symptoms that occur in adults occur in children when they experience stress and anxiety. So palpitating heart, you have the butterflies in the stomach, you can have a tightness of the chest, you can have dizziness, you can have sweating, right? So one of the interesting things that we do in the book is we talk about the movie theater technique. So many years ago, there was a researcher named Joseph Ledoux, and he's the one who did all the research on the amygdala. So if you've read anything, any kind of psychology book or anything about anxiety, they always talk about the amygdala. And back in the 70s, when he was doing the research, he called the amygdala the fear center. Okay, so everybody started to believe that, well, fear is something that I can't control, right? My amygdala, I can't control. It activates and it's the fear center. 30 years later, he said, you guys, I'm really sorry. I know all of these drugs have been created because I wrote about the amygdala, but I should have never called it the fear center because fear is actually something that's conscious. Okay. And so in the book, we talk about the movie theater. If you've ever been to a movie theater and you've seen a scary movie, you know that you can have to the question, right? What happens to kids? Your heart can start racing while you're watching the horror movie. But you also know that you're not in danger, right? You never actually think that someone's going to jump out of the screen and do something to you. And so although your body, the amygdala, has activated and you're having those symptoms, you can consciously say to yourself, I'm not afraid. This isn't something to be afraid of. And so we teach kids this movie theater technique that fear has some conscious choice, actually a lot of conscious choice. So one of the ways to get through those symptoms is actually just to say some mantras to yourself. This is really uncomfortable, but I'm safe. This panic can't do anything to me. This too shall pass. And so within a few moments, yeah, it's super uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good, but you pass through it. Other symptoms are irritability, defiance, rebellion, overeating. You know, just like Rini said, what an adult would do when they want to numb out and distract, you know, you're going to see it in your kids and you're going to get triggered by it as a parent and think that they're being defiant, they're being unruly, they're being lazy. These are manifestations of anxiety. So watch out for them. And especially in this lockdown pandemic situation, it's not going to look cookie cutter. You know, you're lucky if your kid comes and tells you, I'm really anxious. That's amazing. They're mostly not going to say that. And they're mostly going to just manifest it through this behavior that spills out of a pressure cooker. And you have to decipher it and decode it and understand, hmm, 
my kid hasn't had a shower for seven days. Wow, that's never happened. Don't yell at your kid. Understand that it could be a manifestation of anxiety. Or my kid is waking up in the middle of the night. My kid is eating too much. Notice it in yourself and notice it in your kid. So people are asking questions on the symptoms. So I want to put both of these out. One is by Regina. And Regina said, how do you help kids who react to this anxiety by overeating? And Isarma said, how do we help kids who react to this anxiety by getting hooked on their electronics, on their devices? What would you advise parents? It's so interesting because when we start stockpiling our feelings, we have to think about emotions. We're kind of doing them wrong. When kids are young, they do them right. When you have a young child, Savishan, I know you have kids, right? When your kids are young, they can cry for 10 seconds and then all of a sudden they're fine, right? They're playing or like my kids, they fight with each other. And then 10 minutes later, they're playing together and they say, wait a second, you were just gouging each other's eyes out. And they say, yeah, but that's over, right? So emotions are meant to come into the body send a message and then they are meant to leave. But when we stockpile our feelings, like when I was growing up, I would worry and I was worried about worrying all the time. So I just pretended like everything was okay. So the worry sat inside me. It never exited, right? And when we begin to do that for a long time, our body gets very upset and we start to take the edge off of all of those feelings and the pain inside by doing things like distracting ourselves, numbing ourselves and disconnecting, right? So all of those things, overeating, playing video games, it is a way to take the edge off of the stockpiling of pain that we've been going through. And so we really truly need to process our feelings and process our emotions. And the way to do it for a kid, there's lots of techniques in the superpowered book. One of the ways to do it is to create a character and begin to personify every feeling. They do it in the movie Inside Out, right? They make joy and they make anger. And so this is a very tried and true technique. So in the book, we create Wistie the Worrier. Talk to your worry. It's part of who you are and you need to change your relationship with it. Mm-hmm. But what do we do if our kids don't open up to us about these? If our children are more silent, they keep it within You have to expect your kid not to express after a certain age. Why? Because they've been conditioned by culture to numb, distract, and run away from their feelings. You know, if we yelled at them one time, if their friends told them, don't be a crybaby, that's it. Children learn very fast. And that's why we wrote this book, is to allow feelings to be part of a normal conversation. The plague in our culture, the reason we're over-medicated, and we're over-numbing is because, what Rini said, we don't do feelings right anymore. And we're trying to take kids back to that. So yes, expect your kid not to be articulate about their emotions. Expect them to shut down. Do not keep asking them questions, you know. What's wrong? What's what's wrong? wrong? Just tell me. Oh my goodness, the kid will shut down even more, right? We have to intuit these things. You know, when your teenager is sitting with a hood on, don't go, you know, what's wrong? He's telling you what's wrong. He is showing you what they're going through. So part of it is to create a safe space to just go, you probably are feeling like this, you know, allow for the mood to show itself through the nonverbal language. You know, they're communicating all the time. So it's a mistake to say your kid is not, they're just not articulating it. And you can do that. You probably feeling all related to yourself. Wow. You know, I'm really feeling, you know, in this low place right now, I'm feeling really helpless right now. And you can give words, but asking too many questions 
imposing on their boundaries and invading their boundaries after the kid is nine, 10 is not the way to go. So reading a book like this is an indirect way to talk about feelings. Watching a documentary is an indirect way. As your kid gets older, we have to use other ways to get in through the back door because they've been conditioned to hide their feelings. They think it's unsafe. They think it's a bad thing. So you being vulnerable, you opening up with them is a way to allow for the space to reemerge. Don't bombard your kid with questions. Don't bombard your kid with your need to connect verbally. Verbal connection is not the only way to connect with your kid. Yeah, connection I think is the key, but it's so easy to throw that word around as a parent. Like you have to connect with your kid. I think the way we really need to think about it is think about yourself having a hard day, right? Let's say you had a terrible day at work and you went home to your spouse or your partner, whomever's at home, and you really wanted to unload about your day. And you look at them and they look at you and they've had a hard day too. And you say something like, oh, you know what? I had the worst day. And then they just, they say something dismissive. Oh, it's not that bad. You couldn't have, whatever. It couldn't have been worse than mine. And immediately you're like, okay, well, now I'm going to call my friend or my mom or someone who I really connect with, right? The person I really want to open up to. And the reason that I'm saying this is because what our kids need is that space to look at us and say, that person gets it. I never opened up to my parents as a kid because I never felt like they got it. My parents were Indian immigrants. I grew up in Chicago and I felt that their experience growing up was so disconnected from mine that they couldn't possibly understand what I was going through. There was no way I was going to share it with them. So how do they get to that space? I mean, there are many, many different techniques, but I think that the macro level thing that we need to think about is that if your kid's not opening up to you, and not talking about it, right? Maybe they don't know how to articulate it, but maybe they're looking at you and saying, I love you, but I don't think you get it. And so that's the problem that needs to be addressed. And you know, I talk a lot to parents about attunement and empathy and validation. You know, the minute you invalidate your kid, like if you just go, really, she did that, right? And they hear judgment, they are going to shut down. We have taught our children that it's not safe. We have taught them that we're not curious. We've taught them that there's a good way and a bad way to think, to feel, to act, right? We're always judging our children, right? The kid is talking about his experience at a party. We're thinking they're going to become drug addicts, right? We're always going, just don't get pregnant, don't get get on drugs. And they see that disapproval in our eyes. And it's so so nonverbal. It's so, so energetic and our kids will shut down. So again, when a parent reads this book, they're going to open up their own communication style to be embracing of difficult feelings, and they're going to learn how to listen better, how to communicate better in an open way. You know, we all want our kids to talk to us, but we create the barriers for that. And it all is in our energetic awareness. We don't accept our children's negative feelings because we think it's going to be the road to doom. Yet it is in the expression of the negative. When your kid talks about, you know, I really want to drink one day. You know, the other day, my 17-year-old daughter said, mom, any day now, I'm going to start drinking, right? And my instinct was to reprimand, punish, judge. (laughs) Duct tape her to the wall. Yeah, yeah, like that's it. You're not leaving the house anymore. Thank you for (laughs) sharing. Now you go into the prison cell, right? But I realized that she's opening up. 
But I'm like, I can't handle this, but I have to handle it if I want her to keep opening up. So you have to be nonchalant and neutral and curious and validating. And I'm like, what would Dr. Shafali say? What would she say? And I'm like, hmm, interesting, really. <laughs> Tell me more, please. I'm so interested, <laughs> right? Or I could be authentic, right? And I could tell her, look, this is really hard for me, but I want to be open. You know, I want to be a cool mom, but this is really hard. That works really well too, being authentic. But that requires us being in touch with our feelings, right? And being attuned with our feelings. But these are the only two ways, authentically being vulnerable or being openly neutral and non-judgmental. There's no other magic to getting your kid to open up. Anything else is going to shut the door. I want to read a funny comment that just came in from Jody Riviera. She said, my 12-year-old twins are listening. They both looked right at me when the subject of asking too many questions came up. Lessons learned. <laughs> you know, if you're listening to this with your children, I'd love to, and if your kid is open, I'd love for your kid to share in the comment box what they think. We'll see if any of those come up. And if you have questions, don't forget to ask the questions in the Q&A box. So Shafali, you touched on something earlier. I wanted to go a little bit deeper. What about us just being vulnerable with our kids? Could you talk about that? I think I learned it from you. I can't remember. I've learned so much from you. But I think it was this concept of being open and transparent with your kid, with your fears, with what you're dealing with. So your kids learn that being vulnerable is okay. Correct. So there's a difference between unprocessed, unconscious dumping of our feelings uh-huh. and vomiting and using our children as a dumping ground, as our coach, as our therapist, and literally using them to be the surrogate proxy healer of your own wounds. Mm-hmm. And then there is a conscious sharing of our processed feelings that come from a place of wholeness where we don't use our children, right? So there's a big difference. And sometimes parents get confused. They think, oh, I shared with my kid all the things I'm going through with my partner and how he abused me and what I said back. No, 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 no. That is unconscious dumping. You have to understand your children are not here to be your witnesses or your healers in that aspect because they're too young. They need to understand your processed feelings. So you have to go through your own healing and make sure that you're sharing out of an authentic place of wholeness where you're sharing, hey, I went through that too. You know, I did drugs too. I used to be really competitive too. I was really full of insecurity like Weenie shared, but we have processed it. So the child gets the version that has gone through healing, right? And then the child goes, wow, thank you for sharing, you know, and I see how you went through your journey. That is useful. So I always tell parents, don't just jump the gun and share for the sake of sharing because that overburdens the child. And then the child goes, you know, hey, either my parent is too crazy or I can't help my parent and now I feel anxious, you know? So they've lost their container. I think that we can be authentic again without over, without sharing raw emotions or raw unprocessed processes that we're going through ourselves. And let's flip that around. What about if our kids have fears which are simply not true? Okay. Mm -hmm. Like if the kid is fearful of being gobbled up by gremlins under the bed, how do we respond to kids when their fears are imaginary? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So there is this statistic that floats around the internet, although if you go do some research, you'll see that nobody knows the real number, but somewhere around 70,000 thoughts a day we have, right? Some very big number. 
we also have something in our brain that acts as a spam filter. So we have a lot of stray thoughts. We have a lot of intrusive thoughts. There are 94% of humans have thoughts that they don't want to have, right? That they think, oh my goodness, where did that come from? But we have something in our mind where we can actually put them in the spam box. And we even call it brain spam in the book, Superpowered. So what we teach our kids is that don't believe everything you think. You can actually have a thought, allow it to float by, observe it. And we don't tell kids to do positive thinking. They will roll their eyes even at the age of four and five. You know, they can sniff that out from a mile away. What we teach them is that you want to be an accurate thinker. So if you think there are monsters under the bed, okay, let's catch that thought, right? So that's catch the thought. Now let's check the thought have you ever seen a monster under the bed? Like, where's the evidence for the monster under the bed? Okay, now let's have a debate, right? We teach the kids to debate with themselves. So one side will be the person who supports the idea that there are monsters under the bed. And the other side will be the people who say there are no monsters under the bed. If you have two kids, you can have them challenge each other and they have to collect evidence, like have a trial. You know, you can make it fun for them until they get to challenging and changing their thoughts. So in the book, we do this five C's process, catch, check, collect, challenge, and change. And that's how you get to accurate thinking because that's really the goal. We don't dismiss it, you know, so it's so easy for parents to go, oh, please, oh, please stop. Oh, what? That's not true. And the minute you do that, again, you're teaching your child as young as two and three to become conditioned. Oh, I can't share. But the kid really believes there's a monster behind the curtain, or the neighbor is a porcupine, and the clouds are, you know, chocolate cupcakes that they want to eat, you know, so they're trying to get there. It doesn't matter. Children have inaccurate thinking, and our goal is to understand that we all have inaccurate thinking at different layers of development. So it's not to dismiss them, not to make them feel demeaned, to go, I get it. I understand that you think, let's go meet these monsters, draw them out, let's talk to them, let's see... Let's make one the judge, make one, and, you know, and then we're integrating their experience through the processing. You know, the key in psychology, in healing is processing, right? It's not that you have a trauma, it's unprocessed trauma. It's not that you have grief, it's unprocessed grief. So the minute you've processed something out, the kid themselves will be like, okay, you know, the monster doesn't exist because right. you're allowing the space and our children are eventually going to be realistic and logical but not unless you allow them to go through the process. So we're seeing questions come in on ADHD. Okay, so both from AK and from Heine Waihe. Sorry, I hope I pronounced that right. AK said, as a single mom, it can be overwhelming to handle anxiety issues when my kid has ADHD. And Heine says, what are your thoughts on kids being diagnosed with ADHD? I believe it's not an illness, but more of a creative power they can learn to use. What are your thoughts on this? Is ADHD another thing that is a hidden superpower? I think it's very interesting. When kids have ADHD, you can often find times, many, many times, when they are able to go into flow, right? Because the thing about ADHD that most people know from a lay perspective is that they can't focus, they can't remain, they can't sustain their focus, right? So they're fidgety, they're easily distractible, and they can't sustain focus. However, we can curiously find a lot of 
times when they are deeply focused, right? When all time falls away. So the idea of flow by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, right? That he came out with that book in the 1990s, where you go into the zone. And so we need to detect when they are able to fall into flow and look at those elements, right? Because that's when they're most productive and most creative. And also we see their focus. But in terms of some of the silver linings of both anxiety and ADHD, we find that kids that are anxious and have a tendency to have ADHD actually make the best friends, right? They are deeply empathetic, right? So the research shows they are incredible listeners. They're the ones that you want in your corner when something goes wrong. And so I think every single child has superpowers, absolutely. And I think when it comes to ADHD, we need to look at both the child and what they're experiencing. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but also the systems that we're putting them in, right? We're putting a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, even younger, in a place where they have to sit for eight or nine hours and do worksheets. You know, I might be a little hyperbolic, but that is a system that is going to appear that the kid has ADHD because that's not sustainable. It's not developmentally appropriate to put a kid in school and have them sit down for that long. We're going to call them all ADHD at that point. So we have to look at the systems too. Right. And we know that a label is great in terms of, ah, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Now you have a context, but labels can also be pejorative, can be demeaning, and the person can feel that's a weakness. So Ned Hallowell, who's written lots of books around ADHD, talks about how he tells children who have ADHD that you have a Ferrari brain with the brakes of a bicycle, you know, and that immediately allows them to see it in this strength-based way, in this positive way. So we want to teach, as we do with anxiety, that ADHD, and a lot of kids who have ADHD, like Vini said, super focused when they want to be. So it's also a product of our culture. Boys have been diagnosed with ADHD at an alarming rate because the school system is just not designed for the hyperactivity of boys. You know, boys and girls are so different but people refuse to acknowledge this. So boys are being labeled ADHD because they're non-compliant. But also, if you go to see, recess has been cut short. There's a few creative programs left in schools. And if the more you push sitting in a chair and the academics of it, that hyperactive boy, who's just naturally hyperactive, you know, just got so much energy, is going to be labeled and think he's got a diagnosis. And then he's put on a zombifying medication, right? So it's larger than just one issue. It's pharmacological, it's educational. And it's this obsession we have with diagnoses. So how to transform that child's experience into a positive experience? Ultimately, we have to teach our children, this is an insane world and you have to thrive in it. So take what you need to from this world and learn to cope, right? But the world will tell you that you are not good enough. So you have to now use your varied strengths and talents and optimize them. Right, but you are not going to feel lesser than because the world will make you feel lesser than because you don't fit into that box. So it's interesting, right? We asked earlier if there are any kids out there, share your thoughts. So this is a comment that came in from a kid. I'm gonna read it out as he's typed it out. But I just thought we'd put it in there because as we're talking as adults, it's nice to see what's going on in a kid's head, a kid who's observing his parents listening to this. And again, kudos to the parent for being so vulnerable and allowing your kid to share this. This is what he wrote. I'm a kid, I'm 10 years old, and my parents don't believe in my dreams because they never seen someone doing it, and they don't believe in me because I'm not good at school. Hmm. 
So the parents have equated worth with the academic letter grade. And this is doomsday for a child who is not going to conform to that grade, right? So this is the parents' wake-up call to realize that they are limiting their child's infinite essence into a letter grade and they're falling for what culture has said is success. And we are showing and vision shows through Mind Valley more than anything, how success is something that is beyond that grade. And until the parent detaches from their own obsession with the grade, they will give that kid the message that he is not good enough because they are equating success with the letter grade. And that entire old paradigm needs to shift. And that kid is telling them, is a cry for help. Like, help me. I'm not good in conventional ways of academics, but here, I'm me. And I want to express myself. I don't need to even be good at anything. I want to just be able to express myself. And I don't find self-expression through academics. It's very hard, you know, I mean, because most schooling systems, whether it be homeschool or in a traditional schooling environment, still use a letter grading system. I consistently tell kids grades are where you are, not who you are right? They are where you are and they are meant to be used. If used properly, they're okay because they're meant to inform the teacher. This is where you are or your parents. And this is where you need support or this is where you can support others. I don't think that inherently there's something wrong with grades. I think that really just our interpretation and the way that we relate to them is deeply, deeply flawed. Wow. That's really, really, really interesting. That comment from that kid really hit me because I wasn't good at school either. And I failed and I had bad grades and I almost failed out of university. And I've come to believe that there's no correlation there with actual success in life. So if you are that 10 year old, just know that your grades do not give any indication of how successful you're truly gonna be in life. So I hope you're still pursuing your dreams. Now we're seeing a lot of questions come in on device addiction and I'm seeing this as well. There's a great documentary on Netflix right now called The Social Dilemma. And it's scary as hell. I'm completely off Facebook at this point. I'm cutting down on Instagram. This whole documentary is talking about how kids, teenagers especially, suicide rates are going up, depression, anxiety is going up. And it all started in 2009. Now, what happened in 2009? Facebook mobile. And so My kids are not on Instagram. My kids are on computer games. But whether it's Instagram or TikTok or computer games, what can we do as parents to create responsible usage of these devices without without suppressing our kids' freedom or judging our kids? Well, let me start and then Rini can jump in. So I really, if I had to do it all over again, I would not hand that mobile device to my child. So for young parents watching, you know, they always ask me, at what age is it okay? You know, as long as you can let it go, definitely till high school. This is utopic. It sounds utopic, but young parents can do this. Parents who are at the beginning of the curve, they don't need to fall into this. See, we, or I, because I have the oldest kid here, fell into it because I was so excited with my own phone. You know, I was like, give me my phone. We didn't know what we're finding out now. And I do believe there will be a backlash, but it's going to take time where we will now be detoxifying. But we didn't know, right? So my kid fell right into it. She was 12 years old. At the time the iPhone came out, boom, she was like, give it to me. I was like, sure, I want one too. So I advise young parents, carte blanche, 
hard rules, hard boundaries, no disputing. There's no if, when, but it's like, would I give alcohol to a four-year-old? No, I wouldn't finish. So it's toxic. It is going to create dysfunction. If you're a young parent. Now, if you're, I have a 17 year old, so it's all, she, her brain has been eaten and taken away by the aliens. It's just doomsday already, but I try not to see it as doomsday. So what can we do with older kids? Talk about it. So I told her about this whole documentary because I can't trust if she'll watch it, but I went play by play and I told her what it's the about. Social Dilemma documentary. Social Dilemma, yes, that you are being manipulated, you are being watched, everything you do is being monitored. You think that you're getting unique, real news. You're not. You're getting fake news that is tailored to your preferences and you are being only given one side of the issue. You are given highly biased information. Do not believe a thing. Do your own research. You are in charge. You are empowered. That's all we can do at the, because... Our kids are already in the mess of it. But I really advise young parents to change the tide and to create rigid boundaries. And I know it sounds like an uphill battle, but parents have control and they have to treat it like cocaine, like alcohol. Unless they see it like that, they will not treat it like that because they're using it in their own lives. Yeah. I completely got off Facebook one year ago and I regret I regret that when I launched my teenagers program, Be Extraordinary, with Jamia Drummond Bay, we used Facebook and we had 8,000 teenagers in a Facebook group. And after watching that documentary last night, I've realized how bad that is. So Mind Valley is getting 100% off Facebook. We're investing in our own tribe software. We're building our own social network. We're launching a competitor to Facebook for social learning. We have to protect our kids from it. I was telling my kid a few weeks ago, hey, you should get on Instagram. There's so many really interesting educational things to follow. And I realized how stupid that is right now. I'm ensuring that my children are not on social networks until they are significantly older and they've been educated on how dangerous these things are. Parents, if you're watching, and if you have Netflix, and I'm sure most of you do, please watch the documentary, The Social Dilemma. It's free on Netflix and it's 90 minutes, but I think it's an eye opener. Oh my goodness. I just have to add in a couple of things. It is really hard. I think there's two things that we really need to do. One is to teach our kids to use technology with connection. When you are going on, even if you take five seconds before you start using your thumb to scroll through, ask yourself, am I doing something to connect, like authentically connect, right? That's what I've been doing for myself. Am I authentically connected or am I mindlessly just scrolling through? I think it's so hard. And the other thing that I think we truly, and this is for everything, but especially for this because it's so incredibly addictive and it's ubiquitous. Every single person, I mean, they're one-year-olds in the shopping cart with an iPad, right? So it's everyone, basically. You have to teach your kids to have a very, very strong connection to their inner voice. So incredibly strong that they can withstand when they put their technology down and everybody surrounding them is on Facebook or Instagram. Because you might be able to create, you know, put some bubble wrap around your kid for a while, but eventually they're going to be out there with everyone else. I think that you have to have such a strong sense of self to be able to go against the grain and the crowd because, you know, other people or other kids are going to be doing what you're not going to be doing at that point. Yeah. So as we come to the tail end of this, tell us where can we get your book? Okay. So there are two ways to get the book besides conventional amazon.com. We do encourage people to go to the indie bookstores. You know, they've been suffering during the pandemic. So if there's one in your neighborhood, ask them for it. They'll have it. Even though the book is officially coming out next week, people have it in stock. But two other ways. The first one is if you want to get three free copies of this book, 
I am hosting a live online event on Friday called Revolve, which is an online version of my other event, Evolve. And I'm giving away three free copies. So go to my website, drshafali.com. If you want to also get the live online summit experience, you get three copies when you register. And the third way is go to getsuperpowered.com. Getsuperpowered.com. And you can get your copy there as well. Wow, what a beautiful domain name, getsuperpowered.com. It's so nice and simple, getsuperpowered.com. Okay, so we're going to make that the main thing to remember, getsuperpowered.com. So if you guys enjoyed this, please support Renee and Shafali. Go to getsuperpowered.com and buy the book. If you really enjoyed this conversation, go and leave a review. Talk about how amazing these two educators are. Thank, Thank you, guys. guys Thank you, guys. Us. Thank Love you, Vision. You. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Take care. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.